Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with John Yonke, CEO and co-founder of Tackle.io, a cloud go-to-market platform that's raised over $148 million in funding. John, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brett, for having me. Not a problem at all. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. So I'm John, CEO of Tackle, born and raised in Buffalo, New York. So a bit of an underdog in the tech world. And I'm a family first guy, so I'm married, my wife, and three children. We all live in Orchard Park, New York, home of the Buffalo Bills. I actually started my career as an SE, so a sales engineer, system engineer, working for EMC, which it's funny that SE job defines a lot of who I am from a business standpoint, just helping people solve problems, and then really grew into customer leadership roles through my career. And five years into my first CEO gig, which has been a heck of a lot of fun. Would 20-year-old John be surprised that you ended up being CEO and founder of a tech company? Actually, no, this was the job I always wanted. And I knew from a pretty early day, I had a job before and the the president and CEO gave a talk in the cafeteria. And I was like, you know, I really like that guy. Maybe I want to be like that guy. So ever since I was in my late teens, I wanted to try to be a CEO. Yeah, when I was growing up, I lived in Michigan. I lived in Wisconsin. And when I was like 22, I found out about this world of tech. I didn't really know that this world existed because of just, you know, where I grew up. And then like the, yeah, really just growing up in Wisconsin, Michigan, you don't have a lot of exposure to technology and Silicon Valley and that whole ecosystem. Where did you get that insight from? Like, where did you learn about tech from and what inspired you to want to have a career in tech? Yeah, it's funny. I grew up a computer kid. My mom was really curious. We bought a computer when I was really young. I ended up teaching computer class in elementary school because no one else knew anything about them. And I know I was just curious. I, I didn't really think about it as a career then. And then when I got a little older, I actually dropped out of college for a bit. And my brother-in-law's best friend was in tech and he needed a lackey. And I was like, hey, I, I'd be a great lackey. So I took a job working in IT when I was 20 years old. And that was really my first exposure. And I worked, I never knew at the time how progressive the company I worked for was, but we were on like the leading edge of tons of open system stuff. We played with VMware when it was 1.0 and I just got exposed to all this new technology and, and really fell in love with it, fell in love with the pace of change, fell in love with solving problems in new ways. And uh, that was the exposure point. So I went back to school for business and the rest is history. If you could meet any founder who's living or dead, who would it be and why? It's kind of the cliche answer, but we work with the clouds. So AWS, Microsoft, and Google. And I would love to meet Jeff Bezos just because I think it is a really interesting journey that Amazon's gone on over the years. I mean, but maybe a little less cliche one might be Henry Ward from Carta. I actually you know, really appreciate the way Henry approaches things from a content standpoint. He's like this visionary and, and leader in the market with what they do, but he approaches it in a, a forward writing kind of way. I actually learned a lot during the pandemic from some of Henry's writings, and I've never had the chance to meet him and think he'd be a pretty cool guy to meet. 
Yeah, his writing stuck with me as well. I remember his announcement for the layoffs right in the middle of COVID, I believe. And I don't remember what exactly about it stuck with me, but the fact that I that resonates and I do remember something coming from him when he had to do layoffs, it was very powerful. I actually, when we had to go through a restructure, I had a list. I gathered examples from all kinds of people. And his was one of the examples that I thought about as I was just thinking through how would I approach communicating such a hard message in a in a transparent way. It's funny how I'm sure when he wrote that and when he shared it, he didn't think about the, the long tail of impact it would have, but it was pretty meaningful. So I, I actually try to share things in a similar way just based upon those examples. Yeah, it's crazy because that was, you know, obviously early days of COVID. And then in the last three years, we've seen a lot of layoffs. Practically every tech company's had to go through some layoffs. So it's interesting that those, you know, early layoffs and when founders were open about it and transparent and sharing those with others, that really did help a lot. I imagine when he was writing that, there was no one else who was really doing that at that point or no one else you know, at that scale. Yeah, definitely. What about books? So the way we like to phrase this, we we got this from an author named Ryan Holiday. Uh, he calls them Quake Books. So Quake Book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any Quake Books come to mind? Yeah, there's a few that come to mind. I mean, the first one, when I was in grad school, I read a book that was The Principles of Influence by Robert Cialdini. Mm-hmm. And at the time, just thinking about influence theory and understanding how like powerful it could be and just understanding what those powers looked like that that was one of those quake books for me because i i think you you learn a lot maybe without even knowing about influence and then the fact there was this like deep science about the way influence worked was really curious to me so that was one maybe a little later in life the book of joy by the dalai lama and desmond tutu as you know, just trying to work through like CEO jobs are hard and complicated and it is a never ending pursuit. You're like, you know, ideally you build a team where you know the least about what every one of your team members do, which is probably the first time in your career you're in that position. And it can be incredibly stressful and painful. And I found myself just trying to work through like how to have the right mindset, how to think about things in a different way. And that book was pretty impactful. Maybe one last one was Endurance, which is the Shackleton story. And and that's one of those books I always think about. Anytime I think I'm having a hard day or hard month or hard year, I think back to those early explorers and, and how difficult it was for them to survive and thrive. Uh, that was a pretty amazing book. My uh, fiance, soon to be wife, and I are soon to have our first kid. She's uh, probably in the other room listening. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Endurance is one of my all time favorite books. And I'm currently making a big push to name our first kid Shackleton. So hopefully she's listening in and, and hears that because I'm nice. a, a huge fan of him. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So let's switch gears now. Let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So when it comes to the problem you solve, how do you think about that? How do you articulate the problem you're solving? Yeah. So we, I mean, we enable software companies to go to market via the cloud providers. So our platform makes that a business decision instead of a product and engineering problem. And our team helps support customers as they go on, on a journey to cloud enable their go to market. So what does that really mean? Everyone has some sort of revenue system. Everyone's trying to figure out, do I do enterprise sales? Do I do bottoms up sales? And these clouds have these massive budgets behind them and they've enabled ways for people to buy third-party software using the cloud budget. And we try to make that really easy. Take us back to the early days and can you tell us a bit more about the backstory behind the company? 
Yeah, sure. So Dylan, Brian, and I, we all work together at another startup called Green Plum. I actually worked for EMC. EMC acquired Green Plum. I joined, helped the company try to scale, and Dylan, Brian ended up being on my team. So we became fast friends back then and always stayed in touch. And, and Dylan was part of the beta program for AWS Marketplace. And when he was working through that, he was like, hey, I think the clouds are going to change the way that software sold. And I think that this marketplace thing is the initiation point of that. And I think it's actually harder than it should be for software companies to take advantage of. There's there's an idea here. And he came to Brian and, and me and we talked through that. And I was like, let's go raise a seed round with that hypothesis. And he leaned in first. Well, Brian and I kind of stayed on the outside. And with that seed round, Dylan leaned in first to start to experiment on what a first version product could look like. And, you know, we we had a a variety of fits and starts like most early stage startups do. But in that first year, we ended up discovering New Relic, who was our very first customer. And New Relic was like, if half of what you say is true, we're in. We've been struggling with this for the last six months. And they gave us a PO the same day. And then we were like, okay, well, can we repeat that? And we were able to pretty quickly repeat that pattern with about 10 other customers over the next quarter and a half, which really got us excited about what the future potential for the company could be. What did New Relic see in you guys? Why did they have faith that this you know could be solved or this is a problem that they could trust you to solve? Yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, we're lifelong B2B sales, customer success, pre-sales people. We all had that same profile and we always worked in emerging tech. And I think so many people approach this problem as a engineering problem. I need to go build and integrate with APIs from the cloud. When in reality, it's a business model problem. And it's a business model problem that requires some technology. But if you approach it business first, technology second, which is the way we thought about it, how do we help these companies change the way they sell? How do we help them complement their go-to-market system with a a cloud go-to-market infrastructure? We were able to approach it totally differently. And I I think it was just and again, we didn't understand how how early it was. We were really, really early. And we actually had this unique point of view and we had expertise that didn't really exist on the market. And I think the combination of all those things, and then it, it really with your first customers just comes down to executing. We did what we said we would do. We listened to their feedback along the way. We continued to innovate on their behalf to solve problems. And I think that set the foundation. New Relic's still a customer to this day. Just so we can understand the scale that you're operating at today, are there any numbers you can share in terms of growth? Yeah, I mean, we're at 550 customers. I mean, we were growing hundreds of percent year over year. This year is a a tricky year. Like, you know, we kind of retrenched the business this year as the whole software market kind of went sideways for a bit and have really doubled down on our ICP. But we believe we'll see $3 billion of transactions through the platform this year. So, and we work with ISVs of all shapes and sizes from seed stage startups up to some of the largest software companies in the world. This may just be my perspective, but from my view, it seems like go to market has really become a big popular phrase over the last like 12 to 18 months. Have you seen that as well? Or was it already a big term? Was everyone already talking about go to market when you guys were founding this company in 2018? It was, I mean, I think people have realized that like, distribution is what wins like great product is table stakes but if you can't get great products in the hands of users in a way that makes sense to them you'll fail and that really all comes down to the way that you go to market and 
Go to market's also the single most expensive part of every scaling SaaS company. In the early days of a SaaS company, your engineering team probably is far bigger than your go to market team. But at some point in time, that flips over. And the majority of dollars actually flow into go to market all through the growth stage of the company. And it's not really been optimized. Like if, if you think about burnt, burn multiples are a very popular topic these days. Efficient growth is a very popular topic. But when capital was free, people were spending, you know, three or four dollars for every dollar of ARR they might generate, which is not sustainable. Like I think we've entered a much healthier version of the world where people are not only thinking about building a great product, they're thinking about distributing it in a cost efficient way. Just to visualize what it looks like if we're a customer. So let's just say that, you know, we're a established company, we found product market fit. What's it look like when we work with the platform? Yeah. So we think about it from a maturity journey standpoint, because we help ISVs launch their cloud go-to-market. And we also help ISVs who are already operating their cloud go-to-market at scale, say tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of throughput, evolve that to scale it. So we we can meet people where they're at in their journey. And in general, you'd engage with us. It often starts with a listing in the cloud marketplace. So if you went to AWS Marketplace and you search for CrowdStrike, you'd find CrowdStrike's platform listed in AWS Marketplace and someone could click to buy that. Tackle powers the back end of that. So if someone actually clicked to buy it, all the API calls would happen through Tackle. But no one from a buyer perspective would ever know. They think they're just working with CrowdStrike. And then we give tools for different personas inside an ISV, because this is a multi-persona problem. It oftentimes starts with the partner team who's thinking about how do I partner with Microsoft or Google or AWS, and then scales with the revenue team because you know, as cloud go to market evolves, every rep in every company needs to know how to win with cloud. When they're looking for budget, the cloud budgets are durable and hundreds of billions of dollars in size are really easy to access. So sellers need to know how to take advantage of that. So we support personas like alliances, like RevOps, like finance, like salespeople, and they all have slightly different experiences. And, and we take this whole cloud go to market thing. We manifest it inside of Tackle, and we also manifest it inside of Salesforce. Because for every rep to know how to win with cloud, it has to show up in the tools that they use on a daily basis, which most often is Salesforce. How long did it take you in this journey to really feel like you had reached product market fit? And, and what did you learn along that journey? Yeah, it's a great question. I think like product market fit evolves. And like there's points in time where product market fit uh, happens. Like our first we got to 10 customers. That was like our first inkling that we had product market fit. And we we're like, okay, how do we go from 10 customers to hundred customers? And, and that path was pretty straight. And then we knew that we'd evolved to be a multi-channel e-commerce platform. So enable, we started with AWS and then we enabled Microsoft and Google to follow. And that was like a second phase of product market fit. Well, it was really clear our customers wanted that multi-channel distribution from what we were doing. And now there's like this third phase of product market fit where the market's changing and it's not just about selling. It's about how do you engage with cloud provider sellers in order to align around delivering value to a joint buyer. It's about using data to analyze your pipeline to make decisions about the best opportunities to go on this journey. So I remember I listened to, uh, you know, Todd from Okta was talking about when he felt he really had product market fit and, and it was much later 
he said it was like $30 million for them. And I remember listening to that and being like, wow, that seems much later than I would have thought. But I do think this evolution of product market fit makes that answer probably much more normal. Like I, I feel we have very strong product market fit, but I also think it's very early in this cloud go-to-market evolution for in like the third inning of cloud where we're in like the first out of the first inning of cloud go-to-market and digital selling has a long tail to come when it comes to the market category is the market category cloud go-to-market is it digital selling how do you think about the market category yeah this category thing because people will always be like well tackle created a new category this cloud go-to-market category and i agree with that and the way i've come to learn and that that wasn't what we set out to do we set out to solve a problem that would make sense to our customers that would have them give us money and have us exchange value for that money and, and we, we were successful in accomplishing that but then we learned we created this new category and i think like category creation is about budget. Like, was there an existing budget for what you were doing? And how do you get access to that? And I think category creators, oftentimes there was no budget. There may not even have been a clear owner. So you're doing something new in a completely new way. And five years ago, like category creation was all the rage. Everyone wanted to be a category creator. When in reality, it's actually really hard. If there's no budget, things take longer to scale. It takes longer to get people aligned. And I do think we're in this new category zone, but the category is changing. If we thought about cloud, I would say Tackle is the category creator for cloud go-to-market. If we evolve to digital selling, I think cloud go-to-market's a subset of what digital selling is. And even the definition of digital selling is still very fuzzy. I think there's this next generation tech stack emerging where all software companies will use new tools in order to drive their revenue systems. And those new tools will look like Gong and Clary and Tackle and Crossbeam and a variety of these other tools that all map into the digital selling future. From a tactics perspective, what did you do to create that line item and really establish the cloud go-to-market category? The first thing, it was about execution. Like we started as the marketplace company and we helped software companies kind of list and launch their cloud marketplace businesses. And that was where we were the first few years. But as the shape of the market changed, we actually had a lot of debate about what was the market, like what was the platform we were building and how would it evolve? And we created the term cloud go to market and we we took a step back from the marketplace company we're like there's something bigger here and we had to think a lot about the workflow like what is the workflow that marketplace was part of which is the workflow of selling but what were the steps before marketplacing that had to happen in order to make cloud go to market successful so the first thing we did was title it we actually created the name cloud go to market we defined what cloud go-to-market was, we started to create content around that concept. And then we had to wait and see, would the industry embrace that? And it was really fascinating to see over the first six months after we started to write content and kind of rebrand the company and our platform with this cloud go-to-market term, you started to see others emulate it. The cloud provider started to talk in that way. You started to see people on LinkedIn change their title. And now if you search cloud go-to-market on LinkedIn, there's all these people whose titles come up as a cloud go-to-market person. So those were some of the things we did to start to like make it clear that this was a new zone and, and just creating a name and getting people to rally out around a name organically was the biggest thing for us. 
This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. I did an interview a few months ago with Godard, the CEO and co-founder of G2, and I asked him, what's your number one piece of advice for a company that's creating a new category? And he said, partner with your competitors, go and work closely with your competitors, get them together or get all of you guys together and really champion the idea and the need for this new category. I know you mentioned there you're seeing others are starting to use the term. How does that feel when others start to use your term? Do you ever have moments where you think, hey, that's ours, or are you just very clear head and thinking, nope, that's truly better for us if everyone starts talking about this. Yeah. I mean, I think imitation size form a flattery and it takes an ecosystem approach. Like digital selling is a really big and complicated thing. And cloud go to market's actually a pretty big and complicated thing. It's not a solution that will be driven by any one person. So I, I'm in no way, I'm excited when people use cloud go to market as a term, because I think I believe deeply that this will become a default substrate of every software company selling system. And for that to happen, that's that's a thing. Hopefully Tackle plays a really big part in it, but it's much bigger than just Tackle. You take us back to those early conversations and early meetings when you were debating this idea of, should we create a new category? Should we sell into an existing category? From my conversations with founders, that's always heavily debated. As you said, creating a new category is very, very difficult. That's the sexy path, but it's also not the easy path. So what were some of those early meetings like as you were having these discussions and what led to you making that call of, okay, it's going to be hard, but we're going down this way. Yeah. We thought a lot about the personas and the budget, like where were the dollars coming from and what were the personas that we'd focus on as this market evolved. And in the early days, and I'd even say today, like this is a multi-persona problem, but I would reflect back on Salesforce. Like you think about the early days of Salesforce, it was the VP of sales who was buying Salesforce in the early days. RevOps or sales operations didn't even maybe exist or didn't have those titles. So there was no budget owner for Salesforce that looked like that. And I think over time, like the budget owner for Tackle does become RevOps, but there's always going to be a business sponsor behind it. But we're so far away from that. And that was like, the more we debated that, we're like, when we see RevOps start to become a clear decision maker in cloud go to market, that's when this market's maturing in a new way. But up until that point, we're still in this category creation zone. So we have to go forth and, you know, build the success, build the momentum and partnership with our customers and partnership with the clouds in order to get to that point. What playbook were you following when you followed this category design process? Was it the play bigger playbook where you map out a POV and you have lightning strikes and all of that? Or what was the playbook that you were running? I wish I could say we did. I know our, our head of marketing was a play bigger person. I wish I could say we had an absolute playbook. I think the, the playbook we run as a company is it starts with our customer. So we really just tried to focus on how do we deliver value to our customers today? What value do they want from us in the future? How do we go build that and get that in their hands so they get to the outcome that matters? I don't think we had like this step-by-step, -step, perfectly laid out approach to build a category, but you know there definitely were some external influencers along the way. Early on, did you have any customer conversations where they just didn't get it? They saw a cloud go to market and they're like, John, what the hell is this? What are you, what are you trying to sell me? 
Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's funny. We were built, we had a ton of inbound as a business for a lot of years. And most of that inbound came from people who understood exactly what we were doing, had heard about us from one of our customers or from a cloud provider and was like, yeah, I, I believe cloud is part of my system, go to market system in the future. I don't want to build that. I'm going to go partner with Tackle. And we tried to like that inbound was great for years. But we tried to, we, as we started to build out our sales force, we tried to say, we need to control our destiny. We need to very clearly define our ICP. And we're going to think about enterprise software companies as our ICP. And how do we hire salespeople to go out and spend time with those enterprise ICs, educating them on the power of cloud go to market? That was when you realized it was early from a category standpoint. Could we send salespeople to go talk to you? you know, name your big 40-year-old vintage ISV. And they'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. We sell through distribution and channel. This cloud thing's not a real thing. No one's going to buy our product bottoms up from the marketplace. What's well, a private offer? And we had to ultimately get to the point where we had to focus on those who got it. We couldn't actually go convince those people that this new go-to-market system needed to be part of their system. And when we did, oftentimes they would fail because they would treat it like an experiment. But the people who got it looked at it as this is a longer term enduring component of our go-to-market system and we're going to invest in it accordingly. So the market's changing. I'm a huge fan of Jeffrey Moore and Crossing the Chasm. And we're in that early majority phase of the journey where people we talked to three years ago were like, no, our customers would never buy that way are coming back around and saying, yeah, we think cloud go to market something we need to do. How did you go about launching the category name? Did you do it all at once where you formally announce it, update the website, or was it more of a kind of slow rollout as you introduced this concept into the market? It was a slow rollout. We started with content and just started to socialize the concept in content. I'm a huge experimenter. I spend a, a lot of time with customers and partners. And so I experiment with messages. Sometimes this frustrates my team because uh, sometimes I'm, I'm not exactly on script, but I, I like to be the abstract, smart, creative. So we started to experiment with it. And then we got to the point where we did an event and it was a larger virtual event during the pandemic. And we called that event cloud go-to-market experience. And we ended up working with the cloud providers. They sponsored that event. And that was like the launch event for cloud go to market. And from there, we started to see the adoption of the name across the industry. Based on everything you've learned so far from creating a category, what would be the number one piece of advice to a founder who's looking to do the same? I mean, I think think deeply about if you want to create a category, like does what you're doing justify a new category? And do you understand that sometimes creating a new category actually takes a lot longer than you think it might? And I, I think every time I get into these debates, like the creation of the new category is validation that your customers are getting value from the platform you built, the product they're using, and the fair exchange of dollars they have with you to accomplish that. Like that's all that really matters. Like if you deliver value to your customers and customers are willingly working with you to get the outcome that you provide, that's when you can think about, okay, I'm creating a category around something meaningful. If you don't have real usage, if you don't have real traction, trying to create a category, I think is a bit of a fool's errand. What role have analysts played in your category creation efforts? 
That's funny. When we started, there were no analysts covering what we did. And we actually created, so Bessemer did our series A and Bessemer does this state of cloud report. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And of course, prior to Tackle, it was like one of the best pieces of cloud research I'd read every year. And when we started to gain some momentum as the marketplace company, we people, customers would say, hey, do you have any analyst data? Can you talk to us about what the GMV looks like through this? How big is this movement going to be? And there was nothing. And so we're like, well, why don't we go create something? So we created a state of the cloud, go to market. The state, it was originally state of cloud marketplace report about four years ago. And we did a whole bunch of research across the industry and then published effectively an analyst report. And that was the time, like that report started to get attention from some of the analysts. And some of the, we started to get inbounds from Gardner and Forrester where they're like, hey, we saw your report, really curious about what you're doing. Can we start a conversation? And then that started to trigger some analyst engagement. We don't pay any analysts still, and that's maybe something as we continue to get bigger, we'll think more about. But now actually there are analysts paying attention to this market. The cloud providers sponsor analyst reports relative to cloud go-to-market, and you know, you're seeing a lot more attention to it. When it comes to the category creation strategy for the next, let's say, 12 months, what are the top priorities? What are you focused on achieving? I mean, for us, we created cloud go-to-market as a concept, and then we had to evolve our platform to meet the requirements we were defining for cloud go-to-market. And that was combining the market cloud marketplaces with the co-sell process and using data to inform how this system would work, manifesting that experience inside of Tackle and inside of Salesforce. So for us, getting to feature complete across that cloud go-to-market platform vision is the primary priority. And with that, as we get to feature completion, we need to get product adoption across our customer base, across that entire spectrum of what the platform takes. So, so we're very much like, I think we're past the, I think cloud go-to-market is here to stay. And now it's about driving success with our customers across this new evolved space versus where they were maybe a year or two ago, very focused on marketplaces. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 148 million to date, and it's from some of the biggest names that exist in ventures. You have Code2, Bessemer, A16Z, all the big names that every founder would dream of working with. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Yeah, it is so much like, and people are always like, oh, how did you get Andreessen to invest? Or how did you get Bessemer to invest? And it really comes down to customers, the traction you have with customers and ARR. And investors called, I would get calls from my customers that investors were reaching out to them long before investors ever reached out to me, which was really interesting. And one of our investors talked to 30 of our customers before they ever talked to me which I thought was unbelievable. So I think like coming back to what's the thing you really need to focus on, you need to focus on your customer delivering value. I think the second part of the fundraising journey, the early dollars are absolutely the hardest dollars you will ever have to raise. If you get to an A and you have real customers, real traction, real ARR growth, raising money becomes much, much easier. Getting to a seed round when you maybe don't have any customers or have a tiny bit of customer traction is incredibly difficult. And I think 
it's important just to go into that phase of your life cycle, knowing that that's going to be really hard. But if you can nail it from a customer traction standpoint, then the dollar should come easier. And I think the last thing, like raising money is all about storytelling and your ability to tell your story, translate that story to people in a way that makes sense and gets them excited makes it clear that you're an expert and you're passionate about it. And you're going to run through whatever wall you face in order to get to the outcome you believe in. And I meet a lot of early stage founders and I think they underinvest in the story. And I think the story is sometimes the most powerful thing you have to think about when you're raising money. Are you a naturally gifted storyteller or is that a skill that you had to really nurture and develop? Maybe there was some of it in there just naturally, but being an SE, and this goes back to that early career journey, when you work for a technical company and you're trying to help people who don't understand what you do solve complicated problems, storytelling becomes a a bit of a crutch because you have to like translate really complicated things into things people understand. And I spent so much time doing that for, you know, nearly 10 years and oftentimes in emerging tech where it wasn't only people didn't understand what we were trying to help them with. They didn't even understand the problem we were trying to solve. So I think I've had a lot of practice telling stories and trying to tell complicated stories. And and I really like I like the test of trying to get people to understand, like, how can you make anyone understand what you're trying to accomplish? One thing I've seen firsthand in a lot of tech companies and and startups is that the founder can have the story dialed in, very clear, very compelling. But when it comes to getting alignment and everyone on the team sharing that story, being able to communicate that story, it's a struggle. Has that been a challenge you faced? And if so, how did you or what did you do to get the team really aligned around that story? Yeah. So I, when I worked at Greenplum, Scott Yarrow, he's the founder or one of the co-founders at Greenplum. And he, he was a really amazing marketer and amazing person. And he, he actually, we were struggling with that exact phenomenon. And he's like, Hey, we're going to certify every single person in the company on the five minute story. And we actually went through a process where we created a five minute story. We created a deck, Every single person, whether they were in finance or in people or in sales or in engineering, had to be able to tell that story. And it really helped galvanize the system around it. We haven't done that at Tackle, but you know, it's something we do try to promote the story internally, get people to hear it as often as possible. And then they need to make it their own. Like everybody needs, especially your your customer-facing people. Like I, we always had this problem in the early days. Like I knew every customer's story. I could go through our first 50 customers and tell you how they were using the product, why they were using the product, the success they had, who the person was in the company, why they bought it from us. And you hire salespeople and they hear you tell that story, but it's not their own. So even once you get people on message, you have to help them make the message their own by getting them to live it with people to the point of success. That's when I think you can be really successful translating that story. One thing that I see a lot in the media and social media is that entrepreneurship and and being a tech founder gets very glamorized and it looks very cool. It looks like a very sexy thing to go do, but I think as I'm sure you've experienced, it's hard. There's a lot of challenging moments. What's been the most challenging moment for you and how do you navigate that moment? Yeah, I think my three most challenging moments in this role all happened this year. And the first one, so we, like many software companies, embarked on a restructure early this year. And 
I think the market was changing and it was unclear to us how much the market was changing. And, and we came to the conclusion that we had to do a restructure and it's a really kind of terrible conclusion to get to, but, you know, to, to keep moving forward and to help our customers, we had to kind of redesign the system. And, and at that time, you know, I got a lot of advice where everyone's like, Hey, you have to go deeper than you ever think when this happens and just like, make sure you think deeply about that. And we thought we did. And we executed on a restructure only to figure out a couple months later, we made a mistake and didn't do it right. And we ended up doing a second one, which was really, really hard. Like the whole thing was hard, but that mistake is one of those mistakes I'll look back on forever and be like, oh, I wish we could take it back. I wish we could have, you know, thought more deeply about it up front and you know, only had to go through it once instead of having to go through it twice. Cause I mean, the first time I think people understand the second time you lose a lot of trust and you lose trust the first time too, but that was a really, really hard time. And I think similarly as you know, we went through this peace time, everyone was growing, everything was up into the right capital was nearly free to a, a pretty like wartime environment. And it takes such different skills to operate in this wartime mode. And there's a lot published about wartime CEOs and wartime leadership. And when you go through that, you realize that not all leaders are set up to be wartime leaders. And that challenged us to think deeply about transforming the leadership team. And, and again, like repeat founders tell you this, they're like, you, you will go through this. You'll probably go through it repeatedly if you're scaling and being really successful, because a lot of people just don't have the experience to go from zero to a hundred or zero to a billion. Like that, that doesn't really exist and you have to transform the leadership team. So that was the second thing. Cause these are people we built the company with. These are friends. These are like people I love spending time with that ultimately we had to conclude that, you know, everything they did was amazing for us. And we valued that deeply, but we needed something different for the next phase of the journey. So that was probably the second like low point for me, just navigating that. I, I feel like I'm probably a better CEO now for having lived it. Uh, the last one was the SVB events, like probably an incredibly stressful weekend for so many in tech who uh, worked with them and talk about like all those other things were in our control. We made mistakes. The market changed. The market was out of our control, but we made mistakes. We had to deal with our mistakes. SVB was totally out of our control. And there's nothing more terrifying than thinking about your company going away based upon something that you couldn't control. So that was, that, that was another really hard, hard lesson. And one, I don't look forward to living through again. Yeah. Hopefully we never have to live through that again. I remember all of that unfolding and just the roller coaster on my end of thinking, okay, yeah, we don't bank there, so we're okay. And then the realization that every one of our clients banks there and you know, if they lose all their money, <laughs> we're basically screwed. So that was a very intense weekend. And I remember you know, when the news came out on Sunday that they were going to backstop the bank. Uh, a big sigh of relief. So I think oh, everyone yeah. text about that. <laughs> I know exactly where I was sitting when that news broke and I got a text from one of my investors saying this was coming and then it came out right after and and sigh of relief was like, I, I didn't even know how stressed I was and it was stressful and I knew I was stressed, but until that wave of relief came across, I, I didn't really realize how crazy that period was. 
that has to be the case for anyone who's in tech or any tech founders who you know, had exposure to that. You know, like they'll remember for the rest of their lives where they were the moment they got the news that everything was going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I appreciate you being very open as well and answering that question. A lot of times I ask that and I get kind of like fluffy answers of, oh, the hardest decision was trying to decide, you know, which term sheet do we take from, you know, these two different tier one investors. And it was just, yeah, I couldn't sleep because I just couldn't decide. So appreciate you being very real and very open. And I think those are the types of stories that founders really love to hear. So again, really appreciate that. Yeah. The road to a hundred million is not a straight line. Like that is for sure. Yeah, it's one of the things I like about doing this podcast is you get to really see behind the scenes of companies that are you know growing, they're doing amazing things, but you get to see behind the scenes that it's really hard. It's not easy and you know, there's ups and downs along the journey. And I think it's very important for founders just to know that there are going to be highs, but there's also going to be a lot of lows as well. It's just you know, how things work. Yeah. And you can't overreact to either of them. When things are good, you have to like underreact to them. When things are bad, you have to underreact to them. <laughs> like it's, especially as a CEO, I always try to think like steady hands on the wheel. That's what, that's what we need. Like if I'm jerking the wheel left and right, it's really hard for everyone <laughs> in the car to stay in place. And cause it's not only like the highs and lows of the year or the quarter of the month. It's sometimes it's the day it's like call by call. You could have an amazing call. I earlier this week, I had an amazing customer call followed by a terrible customer. Oh, and I was like, man, these two things could not be like, they're completely opposed and you just have to keep working. Have you ever seen that chart? And it's like a, a year in the life of an entrepreneur and it's like a squiggly line. It's like, I'm rich, I'm bankrupt, I'm rich, I'm bankrupt. Like that's how I feel like my day is. You know, It's like the ups and downs, it like never ends. It's not over a course of a year. That's That's a daily occurrence. And I think that's the case for most founders. It's ups and downs all day long. Yeah, totally. We are up on time here, so I want to be respectful of that and just end with one final question. Let's talk about the future. So if we look at the big picture vision here, what's that going to look like over the next three to five years? Yeah, I think I said this before, nailing the cloud go-to-market platform is our primary mission short term, like I'd say over the next 18 months, and we'll continue to invest heavily and innovate greatly on behalf of all of our software company customers who are looking to scale this as part of their business. From a longer term standpoint, I think there's really two things. One, you know, I think about this as there's $755 billion of B2B software sold. And some of that is migrating to the clouds. Will that be 10%? Will that be 50%? We're not sure yet. Like we think 10 to 20% is extremely reasonable. And how can we help that 10 to 20% accelerate its migration to the cloud? So we think about ways to innovate, to make that happen. Partnering the cloud marketplaces or cloud go-to-market with channels is a big area of investment right now because we think that helps accelerate that migration of software to the cloud. On a longer term basis, I come back to selling software is the most expensive part of every software company and is really yet to be disrupted. And there's all these signals of change. There's you know product-led growth, there's usage-based pricing, there's cloud marketplaces, there's ecosystem growth. There's all these signals that things are changing, but we're still in the earliest days of that digital selling revolution. So I look forward to continuing to invest in how to make selling software as efficient as possible for all of our customers. Amazing. I love the vision and I've really loved this conversation and would love to keep you on and keep asking questions, but we'll have to save that for a uh, part two, perhaps in a, maybe a year from now. 
John, yeah. before we wrap up, if there's any founders listening in that just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn, John Yonke on LinkedIn or on Twitter, exact same handle, or you can always follow Tackle.io to see content specific to cloud go-to-market. We publish a lot. We love to publish customer stories, early companies who are just starting to scale their go-to-market systems with cloud up to some of the largest sellers in the world. So we'd love to share what we learn along the way and appreciate it. Amazing. John, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Brett. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.